This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Good to have you with us today. All right. Um, the subject of the discussion was Arab customs. Uh, to me, it's rather nebulous uh, to speak of Arab customs. Uh, but what I would like to speak about this morning is the family unit within the Arab-American family. In the Arab-American family, the family unit is very close. And um, every event in the lives of the children is taken very seriously. And whether they're Muslim or Christian, the family is key to the success of the Arab American family. And it's the greater family. It's the grandparents, as they say in Arabic, the Jiddu and the Sittu, the Teta, along with the parents. And they make a huge unit. And children are extremely dear to Arab people. So when a child is born in an Arab family, it's considered a great honor and a great privilege of God to have the children as part of God's creation. And the family is extremely protective of their children. And in some ways, some people may assume that maybe my people tend to be a little too involved in the lives of their family. I had a student, Arab-American girl, in my ethics class this morning say that when she was 16, she was upset with her mother because she thought her mother was too strict. Now at 22, she's happy her mother was the way she was. And she feels that she can now get along with her mother in a much better way because she knew the reason why she was strict and demanding was to protect her. So as she matures, she, she, she sees that as an asset. So this morning we'd like to talk about the new kids in the block. They're the Arabs in the southwest suburbs. When I came to Moraine in 1995, there was a mere 1% of Arab students on the campus. Now I would venture to say they're about 23%. And I know some people may quarrel with that figure, but it's close, if not up to that point, and growing. And as I drive through Harlem Avenue and see the various Arab stores and cafes in place of business, I'm proud to see it. Um, the situation in this community is that the Moraine Valley is a very diverse campus. We have many ethnic groups. We have a large group of Polish American girls, African American, Hispanics, Albanians, Macedonians, Japanese, Chinese, Korean, and I know I'm missing a few along with the second and third generation Americans who came from the south side of Chicago 
as Irish Americans, as Polish Americans, and as African Americans. But the Arabs present a unique asset to the community because when Western civilization was down, if it weren't for the Arab Moors in Spain, we would not know about Aristotle, we would not know about Plato, we would not know about medicine, pharmaceutical products, algebra, and various forms of mathematics. If you go to Christ Hospital on 95th, you see that there are many Arab American physicians working in hospitals. Now, the topic at hand was how to respect Arab customs. So I would like to open it up to questions from the audience. And we'll try to respond, Professor Droll and myself, and possibly we can induct Kash, who's hiding right now. And uh, there he is. And we'll, the other two professors, uh, what Dr. Wazwaz and Professor Azam, uh, being preoccupied by other sundry things. So I'm going to now turn it over to Professor Droll for a minute, and then we'll entertain questions. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, I think that would be a great idea, and I think uh, the question should center around uh, perhaps uh, stereotypes or questions that you might have about your encounters with Arab American culture, and then uh, we and others can respond to that. Uh, I had the privilege this past summer of visiting uh, Professor Zabib's old neighborhood in Boston, and uh, there's a great book about that neighborhood called The Urban Villagers. I think Banfield was the author. And he makes the point in that book that the Italian-Americans who settled in Boston had one thing in mind all week long, and that was meeting with the family on Wednesday evening. And no one in the extended family needed to communicate to anyone else where the dinner was going to be held that week. It was almost uh, by osmosis that everyone in the family knew that it was going to be at so-and-so's house. And all of the other activity that they engaged in throughout the week, uh, going to work and conducting business and uh, making contacts in the community, all of that was for the purpose of getting together with the family. So what I'm underscoring is uh, Professor Zabib's opening comment that at this historical stage, the family unit is the most important, and that has to be clearly understood. And this has been the traditional immigrant experience in the United States. But we are going up against another culture, and I'm not characterizing one as good and the other as bad. Both have merit. The, the modern culture or the individualistic culture. And so as the family unit makes its way in this country, it has to uh, encounter another culture. And oftentimes that's the cause of tensions within families. Uh, you had an experience this morning, I did too, uh, where the 
first generation doesn't understand why the second generation is becoming so American or so modern or so Western. And it always leads in the immigrant story to, to tension. The genius of that story in this country is that by hanging on to a group's particularity, they have been able to launch themselves with confidence into the mainstream. And an additional problem that we're having today is a withering of the particular. And so if we have uh, less of a base where groups can identify with their own, then it seems that it's less likely that those people will succeed in the mainstream culture. So I'm just repeating uh, what Andrew said, and I, I think the idea of uh, questions about stereotypes would be a great way to get into it. Yes, hi. Well, first of all, I'd like to apologize that I'm here late. Um, research papers are coming up due, and I had panicking students that needed my attention, so I apologize again, but um, I'm ready to take any questions. Uh, first, I need to be filled in on what's going on here. Well, what we've, what we've done so far is, is just describe uh, the importance of the family unit in the Arab American culture. And uh, I think what we're going to try to do now is invite uh, students to ask questions about that culture based on their experiences, based on their stereotypes, et cetera. And then we can develop it from there. Yeah. Yeah, I think we'd welcome questions as well as um, comments as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I see that clearly there are some Arab students in the audience, and if you'd like to share some of your experiences or views with us, um, you're Go welcome ahead, don't be shy. We'll, we'll begin answering questions now. Who would like to begin? Anyone? How about my class? <laughs> Extra credit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have my humanities class with me today, so... My students know that I'm evil. I don't give extra points. Yeah, well, I don't mind giving extra points. But uh, if you have any lingering questions about Arab Americans, this is the time to ask. Uh, Professor Azam is from Egypt, although she doesn't detect any uh, Arabic accent, as we know them. Uh, she was educated there in England, and uh, she comes with a full complement of uh, historical experiences. My background is Syrian. Um, second generation. My grandparents came to this country in 1904. And they settled in Boston, the home of Khalil Gibran, the great Arab poet. And um, so, therefore, we're here to help you try to understand our own people. We are Americans, of course, but we are also Americans of heritage, as all of you are. So, are there any questions from the audience? Mo, you should have a question. You always have questions, Mo. Anything beside the uh, laptop. Troy, this young man. Ali, go ahead. All right, that's a good question. Uh, I grew up in a neighborhood called the South Cove in Boston. It was 94% Arab. And when I left my house on 89 Oak Street and walked one block... If I misbehaved, Mrs. Montaha Malouf would call my mother. So there was a watchdog group among my aunts. They're all aunts and uncles. Because within the Arabic community, we respect elders. So anyone over 30 was considered amu umti. And we, uh, so whatever you tried to get away with, 
you wouldn't get away with it. So living in Boston during those days, it was like living in a little Arab enclave. Uh, most of the immigrants there were from Lebanon and Syria. There were some Palestinians and there were some Iraqis, and occasionally we'd have an Egyptian neighbor move in. But they and were predominantly Syrian Lebanese in those and days. And any prejudice at that time? Oh, yeah. There was a, we, our neighbors were the Irish in South Boston, and they had the typical names. They would call us rug merchants, and, uh, and there was a bridge on what they call Broadway where we had to encounter our Irish neighbors. Eventually, we got along with each other, but in the beginning, because of our names, my name fully is Abu Zbid. Abu, father of, which is used in a lot of Arabic names, uh, caused me many problems. Because when uh, growing up with my non-Arab fellow students, they would like to make fun of my name, which means father of the raisin. And uh, I got many fights. And uh, my father changed my name, anglicized it, and when I became 21, I went back to my name. He thought I was nuts. He said, why do you want to go back? I said, because that's my heritage. But see, he lived in an era when he wanted to fit in with the American ethos. I want to fit in, but I'm proud of what I am. So I reverted back to the name. That was My father wouldn't talk to me for two years. He was upset with me. But uh, those are some of the experiences. The other neighbors, were, along with the Irish, were the Italians. We had African-Americans. We had a lot of Chinese neighbors. And uh, we were all immigrants, all of us. There were the Irish with their brogue, the Italians with their accents. African-Americans were there who were new from the South. They came from Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. We were all in the same part. I hope I answered your question. Uh, anyone else? Join it. Uh, I think it would be interesting to hear a description of uh, the diversity of the Arab community of the South by uh, suburbs. Uh, what parts of the Middle East or connections uh, to old, the old countries they maintain, where they come? Mm-hmm. All right. I can, yeah, Professor Zambra could probably handle that better than I could. Maybe, maybe uh, one of the students. Uh, maybe one of the students want to come up and answer that question. Ali, uh, the majority of the students come from Jordan and the Palestinian occupied territories. Am I correct? correct. All right. So the majority. Andrew, maybe, uh, I mean, it would help me too. What is Palestine? All right. Ali, you want to explain that? What is Palestine? Why don't you stand up so they can? Biblically and psychologically speaking, we call it Palestine because that's what we were born and raised to call it. It is originally Palestine. Right. In biblical terms and Quranic terms, it's called Palestine. In 1948, the British gave the land off to the Jews after World War II and promoted it as Israel. Are, are Palestinians Jordanians? Are they Syrians? Or, or is it, a, is it yeah. their... Um, yeah, many of the Palestinians were extremely 
diversified as Arabs because they had to live outside of the Palestinian territories. And so they're very accustomed to Western culture, and they adapt pretty well to any society in which they live. So we always are proud of the fact that Palestinians are everywhere in the world, and they adapt well. And uh, you can take a small town in Palestine, and you'd be shocked at how many physicians come from that one town. It's amazing. Uh, and I'm going to reiterate again what I mentioned earlier. If you go to Christ Hospital on 95th, a lot of the physicians there are Palestinians. Yeah. You may not even know that, but they are. Uh, any other questions? This is the time to ask. It only happens once, one month a year. <laughs> Let me uh, continue my comments about diversification. I was the first Arab-American professor full-time at Hyatt Since that time, I'm proud to note, they've hired a Marine about seven now, right? Seven Arabs? Oh, yeah, seven Arab professors. Oh, full-time. Part- full-time, no, well, we have them on the staff as uh, scientific assistants, uh, so we have about seven full-timers now. Mostly women. Now, I don't know if there's a <laughs> gender reason <laughs> for that, but uh, that's what's happening, which is good. And I mean, I've been on the diversity committee with Dr. Misha, and we've worked very hard to diversify the full staff of Moraine Valley to reflect the American experience. So you're seeing all sorts of people being hired in Moraine which I'm very proud to be part of. Andrew, I've heard that uh, Japanese Americans intermarry at the highest rate. They marry people outside of their culture, Japanese Americans. Uh, Would you have a sense of what is happening among Arab Americans and what might start to happen? Are Arab Americans marrying other Arab Americans or... Are, uh, are there, I don't know what the proper term is, but right. well, the majority of Arab Americans married within the Arab American community. At the same time, there's been a move outside the community. There are more intermarriages. Intermarriages. Uh, yeah, they're occurring. And of course, being part of the American experience, people fall in love with people. They don't pick whom they're going to fall in love with. So, it's going to happen more and more. Where Arabs are going to marry outside the Arab community. I have two students now with me that tell me that uh, two of their sister-in-laws are Hispanic, and uh, one is Polish, and so uh, more and more of that is happening. Yes, Teresa. Yeah. Yeah. Would you want to answer as to why you think it's the men and not the women? Is that true? You think? Well, um, you, I'll comment on that one. Um, I think that may be partly true. Um, I think, however, though, in the Arab community, um, I, I'm, I'm one of, again, like, and I married in Egypt, and I married an American, and that was unheard of, absolutely unheard of. Um, a lot of people faulted my parents for accepting the marriage, my marriage to an American. Um, but I think a, a, it has a lot to do with the fact that in Arab culture, children follow the, um, the, the nationality and the religion of the father. The majority of Arabs 
are Muslim. You know, they're not all Muslim, but the majority of them are. Um, so in the majority of the case, and the majority of Westerners are non-Muslim, you know, and to keep the Muslim community growing, they, they, you know, they don't want women to marry non-Muslim men because that's, that's, that was my case. I mean, he has to, con well, actually he would have to convert. Yes, so I'll take that back. He would have to convert to Islam, um, and that, that poses a big problem. Culturally. Well, um, a Muslim man can marry a non-Muslim woman. A Muslim woman cannot marry a non-Muslim man, so he would have to convert, and that usually poses a problem. So, you know, and again, the reason for that being that you know, the, 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 the children, they want the children, they want the Muslim community to grow. You know, so if the father is Muslim, the mom is not, is not Muslim, that's fine. If the father is non-Muslim, then he would have to convert, you know. Um, and as I said, sometimes there have been cases that I've seen where, you know, the man is willing to convert, but he's, you know, his family is opposed to it, so they won't go through with it. In some cases, the man may fall in love with a Muslim woman, but he's not willing to convert from his religion. You know, so th I think religion and nationality has a lot to do with it as well, aside from the fact that, yeah, men are more out there, you know. Um. Mm -hmm. um, th that's an important stereotype we should clear up. Uh, you are correct in saying that the majority of Arabs are Muslim, but the majority of Muslims are not Arab. And that's very important. I think that uh, I find people too easily making an equation between Arab and Muslim, Muslim and Arab. They are not the same thing. And uh, the majority, as President Bush learned last week in Indonesia. <laughs> and this is not always the case. As a matter of fact, yeah. Egypt, Egypt um, in the Middle Ages was predominantly Coptic. Egypt has a very large Christian, a Coptic Christian community. It is predom was predominantly Coptic. It, there's a whole area in Egypt called Coptic Cairo in Cairo. And it's beautiful medieval churches are there. Um, we also have a Coptic Pope. I am Muslim myself, but we also have a Coptic Pope. Pope Shenouda. Pope Shenouda, yeah. who is in Alexandria. So it's like the Vatican. You've got the Catholic Pope in the Vatican. We have Pope Shenouda, the Coptic Pope, um, who lives in Alexandria. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Uh, statistically, only 20% of Muslims are Arabs. And the largest population of Muslims is Indonesia. So a lot of people mis misconstrue this. Mm -hmm. All right, any other questions, guys? Yes, Mohammed. That's a good question, Mohammed. Uh, why should it be the question? Well, the question is I'm going to repeat it my own way. This is what bothers me. Come. March 17th, all of a sudden, we have a lot of students on campus here who think that they're Irish. And what that means is that they go over to Western Avenue and do some drinking. And, and that becomes a stereotype of Irish culture. And, and I think what you're hinting at is uh, that the same thing can be present among uh, so-called Arab-American students, that they begin to lose lose connection with the true culture, and then uh, there's the trappings that hang around for a while. And, and his question is, uh, how could someone, a, a young adult, uh, really learn about and stay in touch with their, their Arab culture? That's a great question. 
and and it, and I hope everyone understands it doesn't just apply to Arab Americans. It applies to every ethnic group. Uh, one of the ways is I'm hoping that here at Marine, and we're working on it, there'll be more courses offered on Arab culture and religions. And uh, we plan to expand on that. You've got to realize that when it comes to courses, there's a very, very strict procedure that we have to go through the state for approval. We have to go down to Springfield. But that's one way in which we're going to try to inculcate more about the Arab culture and religions. I'll give you a sad example. Uh, in class the other night, I won't mention which class it was, uh, my Tuesday night class. Uh, I, I, we were talking a little bit about uh, the fall of communism, and I mentioned Lech Valenza. I had three Polish-American guys in the class. They did not know Lech Valenza. I mean, it's horrifying that they would this this near to a great person and a great event like that. They didn't know him. So uh, we're going to take a little class field trip up to Archer and Narragansett to Lake Valenza Plaza and try to introduce them to their own heritage. Uh, it's very important, very very important. And and I'd like to get your reaction to what I said earlier, Andrew. It's my contention that this particularity, this ethnicity, this this family culture is the launching pad for the mainstream. And I think one of the problems we're facing in this country is that people do not have the confidence and the solidity in their own culture, and so therefore they are not uh, mainstreaming very well. And, and there's a dominant culture that uh, denies that that's important. But I, I think the immigrant experience has proved that those people who are best grounded in their own uh, churches, their own ethnic clubs, their own soccer leagues, their own mosques, those people do best in the mainstream. And those people who are the so-called rugged individuals uh, don't do as well. I, I, I totally agree with you on this. Um, my non-Arab students in the class, if I polled them and asked them what their the background is, most are halves and quarters. They're half this or they're half that. Uh, uh, I looked at one girl, and she's in front of me now. I asked her if her mother was Italian. Remember that time? And you said yes. And I just could tell by her look that she had an Italian blender. And um, although she had, your, your father's Irish, am I correct? Polish. Polish-Italian. So you have two great heritages there. That's the east side of Ireland. <laughs> in Boston, the Italians and Irish intermarry a lot, so it's typical in Boston, whereas a lot of Polish and Italians intermarry here in Chicago, I understand. But um, again, we want to inculcate more about Arab culture, so are there any other questions? Well, that was a good question. Mm -hmm. So we're slowly beginning to add more and more, and it will take time, but it will happen. Well, this may sound obvious, but uh, some people have learned the hard way. There's no substitute for talking to your parents and your grandparents. Oral and history. Oral, oral history, and uh, if necessary, recording them, because uh, later on, so, so many people regret that they didn't get the story. And then they get interested in genealogy and go on the Internet, and all they get is is fragments of this and fragments of that. And, and, and if you do have parents or grandparents who are 
your own parents. You have to talk to them and get their story. And now, don't wait to lay Don't wait. Yeah. Uh, when I was in Boston teaching at a college there, we had gone through a whole history of oral histories. We had the students go back to their homes, interview their grandparents and their parents and their aunts and their uncles, and they would compile an oral history. And uh, that was very important. And the students were shocked at what their grandparents told them about their varied ethnic histories. And we had all kinds of ethnic backgrounds represented. So we can apply it to the Arabs, to the Polish, to the Irish, to the African Americans, to the Hispanic, to any ethnic group. Yes. Okay, questions again. Any questions? Mo, go ahead. Books. Um, from a literature, from a literary perspective. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I have a, I teach the non-Western lit class, and um, you know, there, I have female writers, books by female writers. Um, you know, Eddie Fadifat's for sure. You know, Distant View of a Minaret is wonderful. Um, there's a really interesting book um, called Beer in the Snooker Club. Wajih um, Ghali is the name of the author. Um, he was actually he was uh, an Egyptian who grew up, uh, actually went to London for his higher eds. Um, so he had that little bit of like an expatriate experience as well. He died very young. He committed suicide very young. But that's a really, really interesting book to look at, like the revolutionary period um, in the Middle East. Um, and there are a lot of others. You know, anybody who, yeah. who is interested is welcome to stop by my office. I have some books in my office. I'd be very happy to talk to you about it. It's A238. Um, so, yeah, come by sometime. Yeah, historically, uh, Mohammed, we've got a bunch of uh, good historians. We had a, a professor at Princeton whose name was Hitti, Hitti, H-I-T-T-I. He wrote four books in English on the history of the Arabs. We have a new book out by Harani on the Arabs. It's an excellent book. It was on the New York Times bestseller list, Albert Harani. I mean, there are lots of books currently being published. Hopefully, Troy, the uh, Marine Library will reflect that. Yeah. You know, we've got to keep in mind, too, uh, we tend to associate the waves of immigrants to this country with the late 1800s and early 1900s, and we, uh, in particular, I think out here on the southwest side of Chicago, tend to associate immigration with the famine in Ireland, uh, because that's what brought so many people to the south side. But the last five years, more immigrants have come to this country than in any other five-year period in this country's history. So we are more of an immigrant country today than we ever were. Now, people are not coming in through Ellis Island. They're coming in through O'Hare, and they're coming in through uh, Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, etc. But more immigrants are in this country today than ever before. So uh, this is the time. This is the time for the immigrant story. Yeah, and the immigrant story is best told in the great city of Chicago. Yeah. I and mean, this is an ideal microcosm of Boston. better than Boston, uh. bigger than Boston. <laughs> because truly, you have 
total diversity represented in this great city of all ethnic and religious groups. So learn more about Chicago, the ethnic neighborhoods, and you'll learn an awful lot. There's a good book on the history of Chicago by Robert Miller. Yeah. He's an excellent writer, Robert Miller, on the history of Chicago. Um, there, there are a couple of other um, titles that I just thought of as well. Beirut Blues is another really good. And I, again, I'm a literature professor, so I'm speaking for a liter from a literary perspective, not historical. Um, but Beirut Blues is a series of letters um, written by a woman as well. It gives you a really nice glimpse into, um, you know, the civil strife in Beirut. And um, another one is um, uh, Reading Lolita in Tehran. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's another really good book. It's contemporary. It's, just, it's relatively new. It came out, what, like a year ago? Um, but what I, I really wanted to comment on, I'm going to backtrack a little bit um, on the importance of, of looking back to your heritage. Um, speaking from my own experience, I did grow up from when I was a baby until 11 years old. I was in London. My parents had moved to London. They're both 100% Egyptian. When I was 11 years old, my parents decided to leave everything that they had built there, and they, we had a great life. Um, really for the sole reason of exposing the children to their heritage because they really felt that we were so far removed despite the fact that we went back at least twice a year. Um, my parents would frequently go back to Egypt. Um, I had extended family that lived in the village. My father was the first to leave a, a rural life, very rural life, and move into the city so when we went back, we lived in Cairo, very metropolitan city. You know, it's the cultural hub. Um, you know, there you got all your a lot of Western amenities and everything like that. Big hotels, cars. You know, it's you know it's really not much different from here, other than the fact that it's really crowded and loud and dusty. Um, you know, but again, all the amenities are there, and we lived there. I went to an American university. I went to a German school, an American university, so I had a very diverse. Um, upbringing. I was a Muslim, but at a Christian school, um, you know, and we would every week go back to the village to visit my aunts and uncles and my cousins and my grandparents. And I was very, very curious about, you know, that I, I was somebody who really wanted to be a part of it. So I'd like to, you know, take my jeans off and put my galibé on, you know, and put my little headscarf on. Um, and just wanted to be a part of it. And I can't tell you how much that has enriched me as a person. It really has. It has given me such an appreciation for, for the diversity that is in our world. I mean, again, growing up, you know, I don't know why they put me in a German school. We had absolutely no German connection whatsoever. <laughs> but somehow I ended up in a German school. So, like, again, growing up multilingual, being exposed to all of these different kinds of cultures, and not just Arab urban culture, but also having this direct, you know, experience with, you know, cousins that never really went past, like, sixth grade, you know. Um, but, but, again, like, seeing so much value in their life, um, it has given me really an incredible appreciation for that. For the, again, for, for, you know, I think we're all, all of us are really in the end, we're all human beings alike. Mm -hmm. I hate to sound like cliche, but, um, but you know, for, for all, all of the Arabs, I would say, oh, my God, go back, immerse yourself. It's not enough to go back and visit, um, you know, and be interested, you know. Like, don't shun it away. Be interested. Try to learn more, more than anything. Try to understand, like, 
why they do the things the way they do them. And I think, again, that you don't have to necessarily agree with it. I think in every religion or in every culture, right. Right. there's stuff that, that just, like, seems so nonsensical. It doesn't, you don't have to agree with it. But at least by understanding other people's perspectives, you can appreciate where they're coming from. And what that does is it builds a huge amount of tolerance. Mm -hmm. You know, so... Yeah. And I, I'm glad you mentioned that, Shereen. Uh, the other thing is the language. Don't lose the language. Um, the Greeks in this country are, are particularly strong on maintaining the Greek language. Uh, here at St. Constantine's and Helens, they have a Greek school, goes from K to 8. And I would encourage the Arab students, if they can read Arabic, don't lose that. By reading, continue to read Arabic literature, newspapers. Why? Because when you apply for a position, don't be embarrassed by the fact that you speak two languages. Affirm it. Make it known. You're bilingual. It's a great advantage to have that. Do you think it's more likely that Arab Americans will retain Arabic because of the Koran? Other, other groups don't have... Yeah, yeah, I really, I think so, because um, among among Arabs and even Arab Americans, I think the religion is really a driving force in their lives, and, um, you know, if, if they are practicing, they, they have to learn that the Quran, however, however, I will say this, the Arabic of the Quran is quite different from the spoken Arabic, and, and I do see instances in which there, you know, the Arabs, they know the Quran and they can, you know, they go through the motions of doing the prayer and reciting verses from the Quran, you know, vaguely understanding the context of what's being said, but they don't really have a handle of the uh, language. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, 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 Yeah, I'd like to I'd like to answer that if I may, and Shereen, of course, if you want. I mean, the Arabs are business people. They don't like to work for anybody. They all own businesses. Majority are they in the professions? So therefore, they're used to interacting with non-Arabs. And in Detroit, as I speak, in Dearborn, Michigan. They're building an Arab museum as we speak, open to the public. And I see this happening in Chicago eventually. So I don't think the Arabs are reluctant to share. They're willing to share. But one of the problems within the community is we have to become organized. And that will happen eventually. Uh, again, because they're in business or in the professions, they are quick to adapt and quick to interact with non-Arabs. Um, well, I, I think generally speaking, for the most part, 
um, you know, and I, the students here could help me out with that. You know, correct me if I'm wrong. I think most Arabs, if you approach them with questions, I think they would be happy to answer. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I mean, I do see instances where um, I think this is true of every kind of ethnicity, you know, I, and it's it's sad, but it's the truth. You know, people feel comfortable among others that are like them, you know, and so you, you see like the Arabs tend to congregate together and they don't want, you know, other people coming in or asking them or if you do go and ask them, they're like, who are you or what do you want from us, you know. So I have seen that attitude as well. Um, so I, I, you know, I really think it's probably just the, the way you approach them, who you approach, but for the most part, I think, you know, Arabs are willing to share. Am I right? You're willing to share, you know, your culture, even if it's with, you know, yeah. Right. Right, and they approach you with a more challenging attitude sometimes, too. They're trying to challenge you. Um, so, yeah, I think, but I think for the, for the most part, I mean, in our community, what I've observed in our community is that people are genuinely interested in diverse cultures, not just the Arab culture. I mean, we have Hispanic Heritage Month, you know. I mean, the college does so much for all cultures. Um, I think there's a genuine interest in, in, you know, diversifying the college and educating people about diversity. Um, and I think there's also a lot of sharing that does go on. Um, you know, so I think for the most part, if everybody just puts down the shield and says, you know, I can approach others and you're welcome to come to me, um, there probably won't be any of the. <laughs> I wonder why our Irish-American guys don't, get an Irish-American club going on campus and have an Irish-American week where we have discussions like this. I, you know, it seems like it's it's the newer arrivals. Yeah. And uh, I find that kind of sad. We've got to keep all of these traditions going. May the Irish-Americans please stand up. Yeah. <laughs> a, uh, we'll put you more on the spot here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's the east end of Ireland. As a matter of fact, yeah. what I would really like to see, and I have been sponsoring the Arab Student Union, um, but what I would really like to see is um, more of a liquidating of these single and you know I, I don't know if I if I, I don't know if I'm being right in doing saying this in public, but um, these single ethnicity clubs. Because what I would really like to see is an international club mm -hmm. where you really are mingling the different ethnicities together. And when you have activities, they're really, it's really a mingling of the different, different ethnicities. Because what I observe is that, you know, the, like, Arab Student Union, I mean, I would welcome anybody who is not Arab to join the Arab Student Union, okay? Because it's, it's, it's all about efforts to share a heritage, and if you're not Arab, you're still welcome to do that, to come and be a part of it. Um, but what I observe is the club is always predominantly of that ethnicity. The events that occur are attended by people of that ethnicity, and we really don't get the mixing. I think that's what's happening in high schools. They are having diversity clubs and multicultural clubs and international clubs and, and trying to yeah. do precisely that. It's a good trend. Yeah, I want to add, like, oh, we have uh, this Thursday, we have the end of 
What is the time and where? Good. Okay, 12.30 to 1.30, C building, Student Life Center. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, you know, Maureen is actually, this has been a, a long effort, but we are offering in the fall, we are offering credit courses in Arabic. We're going to have Arabic 101 in the fall and Arabic 102 in the spring. So anybody who's interested, and I will tell you, it is a beautiful language. It sounds beautiful. It looks beautiful. Um, so if you're interested, you know, sign up for those courses. We want them to keep running. It was a hard sell to the administration, and now we have them. And yes. <laughs> um, That's taken three years, by the way. Three years three to get years. that approved. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But we have to go through the state again. And so, so we, we, we want to see interest in those classes, please, so we can and, keep uh, them. And eventually I'm going to tap into Dr. Wazwaz because she teaches Arab-American lit or Xavier's part-time. And maybe in time we can do something with her here along with Shireen. Maybe they can co-broker together. They both have backgrounds that are excellent in those areas of fiction and literature. We could utilize this. Yeah, the only error, like, like, I mean, all of our classes, really, I think most of us that do teach literature, like intro to fiction, I mean, you can't do Arab, like in American, I guess, can you do Arab-American literature in, like, in an American no, they're, class? They're, they're, no, there are precedents. No, there are precedents. We can do that. Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of us do mix in a little bit of Arabic literature, but, um, and we do have the non-Western lit class. That's the one that I teach, but that is Chinese, Japanese, Middle Eastern, and, and African as well. Um, so, yeah, we would like to see an, uh, just a strictly, like, Arabic history, uh, Arabic literature. Of course. Yeah. Uh, could you describe a little bit uh, uh, the diversity in uh, Islam and the practice of, um, in the United States and also in our, in our community, some of southern? Yeah. You mean between Sunni and Shia, you're talking about? Well, I, I think the question is about Islam. I, I think the first thing to recognize is that, in a sense, there is there is one Islam, but but in another sense, there is not one Islam. Not every Muslim is the same person. Not every Muslim appropriates uh, their faith in the same way. And, and that's another stereotype that I think we have to uh, rid ourselves of. Um, you know, in the same way... That, uh, uh, I don't want to say something irreverent, but um, the, the, the majority of Catholics, for example, don't go to church. So, you know, to say, well, Catholicism or, uh, you know, there, there's, uh, there's a lot of different Catholics and they appropriate their faith in different ways. I'm not, I'm not uh, condoning certain things. I'm just trying to be descriptive. Uh, and so I think, I think when we think about Islam, we also have to, be sophisticated, uh, and then try. If you're asking about the, uh, the the branches of Islam, 
traditionally, there are two, uh, although there's, there's some uh, twigs on the branches. Uh, the majority branch is called Sunni Islam. Uh, the word Sunni, I think, means consensus. And uh, that accounts for about 90% of all Muslims in the world. The minority branch, and by the way, these branches go all the way back to uh, shortly after the death of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, the minority branch is called Shiite. And there's about three or four spellings that are used in the uh, papers today. So, uh, you know, that, that's all the same uh, branch. And the vast majority of Shiite Muslims are in Iran. And we have learned in the last six years there is a significant uh, group of Shiite Muslims in Iraq. And then there are some Shiite Muslims in Montreal, Toronto, New York City, Chicago, everywhere else. But uh, by and large, uh, most Muslims fall in the in the larger Sunni branch. What more do you say about that? And there are smaller groups in Syria than the Alawites. I mean, and like all groups, they break into smaller groups. Like in Christianity, we have different Protestant groups, but uh, generally the two mainline groups, the Sunni and the Shiite. And and uh, Troy, you're asking about out here. As far as I know. Uh, most of the Muslims out here on the southwest side would be Sunni. I, I presume in Chicago, maybe on the north side, there are some Shiite uh, groups. I, I'm not in touch with them. <laughs> well, it's 12 o'clock, and I have a class to go to. Thank you for being here. Yeah, very good. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.